Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and... Tegan Taylor, reporting for duty. And you're off to the movies later on. Well, yeah, not as much as the researchers who I spoke to, though. The US researchers put their bodies on the line to watch the 250 top grossing movies of the past 25 years and to look at the food and drinks depicted in them. Sounds gross as well as <laughs> grossing. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you later, Tegan. Also today in the show, moderate alcohol use and the brain, certain times of life to watch out for. Why do half of people who go into hospital for alcohol withdrawal relapse? And what can you do about it? Have you been missing something about smoking? Now, some people believe that low to moderate alcohol consumption is perfectly fine for the brain and might even reduce the risk of dementia. Recent reviews of the evidence, though, suggest that's not true and, in fact, being much worse for your brain at certain times of life, sensitive times of life. Dr. Louise Mutin is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Healthy Braging, Aging I should say, at the University of New South Wales. She was one of the researchers on a study of alcohol use across the lifespan and an author of a piece on it in the British Medical Journal. Welcome to the Health Report, Louise. Thank you, Norman. So tell us what was known about heavy drinking because before we get to this study, which was about low to moderate and the brain. Yeah, okay. Well, in terms of heavy drinking, there are three key periods in the lifespan where we know that heavy drinking has quite a detrimental impact on brain health. So in terms of uh, the gestational period, so from birth to conception, heavy alcohol use by the mother can lead to things like fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Then when we're looking at adolescents, particularly older adolescents, so 15 to 19-year-olds, uh, things like binge drinking and heavy alcohol use also lead to neurodevelopmental uh, deficits. And then when we're talking about later life, uh, recent research just published this year identified alcohol use as one of the, the key modifiable risk factors uh, for dementia. And later in life being what? Uh, over the age of 65 years is what we focused on in this uh, review. Okay, so that's what we know about heavy drinking. And heavy drinking is defined as what? Uh, a lot of these studies are con uh, conducted in the context of alcohol use disorder. So that's sustained heavy drinking over a long period of time. So we're talking six or more standard drinks per occasion on a, a sustained, at a sustained level. Even in adolescence? In adolescence as well, yes. And what is it about adolescence that makes it such a sensitive period? We've, we've discussed this before on the health report. Okay, so the adolescent brain is undergoing a lot of refinements in terms of the way that it is organised, and that's particularly in the frontal regions of the brain. So the development of these areas are related to adopting successful adult roles. And we also know that alcohol use actually has its greatest impact on those regions of the brain, those frontal regions of the brain. So when an adolescent drinks heavily, the alcohol is affecting those frontal regions which are under heavy construction during that period. Now, you've looked at low to moderate alcohol use and you've particularly looked at pregnancy in one study recently. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you That's found. That's right, yep. Okay, this was in a study of over 10,000 kids. It was based in the US. Uh, and we looked at low to moderate alcohol use. We know that heavy alcohol use is damaging to the developing fetus, uh, but we wanted to look at low to, well, quite low levels of alcohol use because we know that this is the most common pattern of use during pregnancy. So about a third of Australian women do consume some amount of alcohol during their pregnancy. 
So what we found in this study... And so just to be clear, so these are the children of women who drank a small, a yes. relatively small amounts of alcohol during their, during their yes, pregnancy? Yes, yes, nine... Yes, yeah, sorry, that's correct. Nine to ten-year-old uh, children um, assessed using a whole range of different uh, psychological batteries and also brain scans as well. Uh, and what we found is that even quite low level of alcohol use during the pregnancy, so as low as two to three standard drinks per week, were associated with poorer psychological and behavioural outcomes in those children. Such as? Uh, there was increased risks of things like ADHD and conduct disorder. And how much of a risk? I mean, it was a, I mean, how much of an elevated risk was there? Um, oh, I don't have the statistics right on hand, but I think something like a thirty percent increase in the risk for things like another one was opposite. Uh, uh, I think it was conduct disorder. A thirty percent increase in the risk for that. Okay, so let's go back to the low tomorrow. So, that, so that's with women. That's one sensitive period. What, what do we know about low to moderate alcohol use in adolescents themselves and in older adults? Because that's what's been said to actually protect against dementia. And Yeah, uh, so starting with uh, adolescents, we really focused in this study on binge drinking because it's a common pattern of use uh, during the adolescent period. So about one in 10 Australian adolescents uh, binge drink. And the transition to binge drinking in adolescence has been associated with reductions in brain volume uh, and it's also been associated with uh, deficits in performance on cognitive tasks, so their ability to think and to perform tasks. In terms of older adults, um, we there is recent evidence to suggest that as little as one to seven standard drinks are associated with smaller volumes in key brain structures related to memory, for example, so the hippocampus. What's not so clear at the moment is whether these smaller brain volumes that you see on brain scans uh, actually translate into function, poorer functional outcomes, so things like cognitive impairment and cognitive decline. Sorry, and when you say one to seven drinks, is that on a single occasion or per day? Are you talking about binge no, drinking? Sorry, across a week. Right. No, no, one to seven drinks in a week. So that's relatively small. Why, why have studies yeah. found a protective effect? What's going on there? Okay, so our best evidence for whether alcohol actually causes a de deterioration in brain health uh, would come from a randomised controlled trial. But that's just not feasible or ethical when we're talking about alcohol. Um, we can't randomise someone to drink alcohol in a way that might be risky. Um, so our evidence comes from observational studies, and that's where we link data on alcohol use with health, health outcomes or brain scans. So one of the big problems with that type of data is that it's difficult to control for something called confounding. So older adults who drink in this moderate pattern are also more likely to come from uh, a higher socioeconomic status background. Um, they're also more likely to be uh, more highly educated. Um, and these, these factors are strongly protective against cognitive decline. So it could be that it is those factors that are setting the damaging effect that low to moderate alcohol use has on the brain. But again, more research needs to be done in this area. We're so, actively uh, looking at this. So it could be misleading. And there is some evidence that over 55s in Australia, the moment that is a group that is over drinking. Yes, we're seeing declines in adolescence drinking. Everyone focuses on adolescence and adolescence alcohol consumption. Well, a lot of people do. But what we're seeing now is that older adults are 
drinking more heavily. So in terms of risky drinking, so five or more drinks in one sitting is an NHMRC guideline for risky drinking. Um, Older adults in their 50s and 60s, they're actually the most likely age group to be drinking in that pattern daily or almost daily. And as you've just said, that might not be a good thing for their brains. No, not a good thing for their brain health. We'll come back to solutions in our next slide. But look, Louise, thank you very much for joining us. Wonderful. Thank you, Norman. Dr. Louise Mewton is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales. And this is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. An astounding one in 10 people worldwide have all the criteria for what Louise was talking about there earlier on, heavy drinking, for an alcohol use disorder at some point during their lives. In Australia, that's thought to equate to half a million people per year. To qualify for the diagnosis, there's a whole list of criteria that you can look up, but it's such as craving alcohol, difficulties cutting down or controlling your alcohol use and developing a tolerance, meaning that you have to constantly increase the amount you drink to get an effect. People at the severe end of the spectrum often need inpatient help to withdraw from alcohol, but more than one in two, 50%, relapse within weeks of getting home. Researchers at Monash University have looked at the biases in in people's thinking which allows the relapse, even though people presumably want to give up alcohol. And the researchers have designed a computer-based therapy to see if they can improve those appalling statistics. Victoria Manning is Associate Professor of Addiction Studies at Monash. Welcome to the Health Report, Victoria. Hi there, Norman. So this alcohol use disorder, just just expand on the sort of person who who gets this. Yeah, so we're talking about people that have, you know, quite moderate to severe alcohol um, use patterns when we're talking about people needing an inpatient withdrawal episode. So very different to perhaps the population that we just heard about. So this would be somebody who's drinking probably daily. and, you know, drinking sort of somewhere in the region of, I don't know, 20 or so standard drinks a day. So in, in the study that we conducted, we found that they were drinking in excess of 20 standard drinks a day. And they actually had a 17 year, they'd actually had a problem for 17 years before they sought treatment. So things have got to get pretty bad before they, they head to inpatients. I mean, and, and, and they can have drug therapy outside. I mean, there are drugs and medications that can help, but obviously those have failed that they really need to go into um, an inpatient facility. Yeah, well, the the medications, I mean, obviously, by the time people, you know, do sort of reach out for treatment, often the problems are quite entrenched and there's all sorts of, you know, it has an impact on people's social functioning, their relationships, their employment um, prospects. And so it's really quite important that people do seek treatment. Medication itself reduces relapse by about 5 to 8% a year. Uh, you know, within a year after detox. But the, the problem is they're often underprescribed and they can have side effects. People forget to take them. Often they're contraindicated with the other sort of comorbid, comorbid mental health and psychological conditions that people have when they're seeking treatment. And so, yeah, they're quite limited in that way. But they, they do benefit some people. So why the huge relapse rate um, when they get out of an inpatient facility? So presumably they, they want to get off dry, alcohol yeah. They, they go in, they, 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 they detox in whichever way is, is that's conducted. Mm-hmm. By the way, does it matter which way it's conducted in terms of the detox? Well, typically, I mean, somebody who would be higher risk or with a more sort of severe alcohol use disorder would come forward for residential treatment or detox. And it's, it's usually a sort of five to seven day period where somebody will be supported. It's medical management, essentially, so that they can detox in a safe and supported way. Medications like benzodiazepines are used to prevent 
withdrawal um, symptoms or severe complications like such as seizures. Uh, and they may also be given other medications to help with the physical and psychological symptoms that can arise with withdrawal. Um, but it's when they leave, you know, they're leaving this sort of protected environment and returning back to the home environment where um, we know that there are these alcohol cues everywhere. And we often hear that relapse, which occurs in about 85% of people within the year, uh, that, you know, they, they, they suddenly have this intense craving or this sudden urge to drink. And we, we've got a pretty good idea now that the alcohol cues in people's environments play a role. So what are those cues? So, yeah, so in, in, heavy, in people who drink heavily and quite regularly, alcohol cues such as sights, sounds, smells, places or even social situations that remind us of drinking, these cues can subconsciously capture our attention and drive impulses to seek out and consume alcohol. And that tendency to notice and respond to cues is called a cognitive bias. And it, and it can explain why we sometimes might find ourselves on sort of autopilot, reaching, reaching for the fridge to grab a beer before we've even really decided to have one. And, 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 and I'm amazed that these inpatient facilities haven't done much about this relapse. I mean, are they, do they just wipe their hands of somebody? I mean, Absolutely not. No, well, t what typically happens is, you know, detox is really not a treatment on its own. It's very much the start of a treatment episode for people with moderate to severe alcohol use disorders. So it's, it's really important that we help people maintain that period of abstinence when they leave so that they can engage in the real psychological treatments that we know help people overcome alcohol problems longer term. So, what are the, so then there must be some surprising ones because you'd assume then that the family would have got rid of alcohol from the home. Um, so you go back to an alcohol-free environment, but, presumably, but you can't protect yourself, I suppose, in the outside world either. No, not at all. I mean, in Australia, we're continually bombarded with these cues from bottle shops, pubs, drinks on, on TV, advertising at sports events. In fact, there was a recent survey that showed that we're um, targeted by an alcohol ad every 35 seconds on social media. So it's hardly surprising when you think about it. People leave detox and return to their home environment, and these cues are everywhere. So you've developed this training program to try and deal with this. Yeah, so the training that we, we've developed, or we, had, we didn't develop it, but a group of researchers in, in uh, Holland and Germany developed uh, or apply, were the first to apply the training, which is called cognitive bias modification to an addiction treatment seeking population. And they found that when it's added to resi residential rehab, which comes after detox for some, it reduces relapse between 8 and 13% a year later. But it was our group in Australia that there were were the first to apply it to detox itself to prevent early relapse. And that's important because we don't have as many people going on to residential rehab here in Australia. So the training itself, cognitive bias modification, is, is actually a really simple computerized training task where using a joystick, you repeatedly push away or avoid pictures of alcoholic drinks that are displayed on a screen and then you pull towards you or approach non-alcoholic drinks such as bottled water and these drinks images are presented in a random order about 250 times in each training session and essentially by practicing this over and over again the avoidance of alcohol cues becomes more automatic and so alcohol cues in, that are in our environments are less likely to trigger us they sort of become less rewarding or less noticeable and then have less influence on our choices around our alcohol use. So it's almost going through a training process that if confronted with this stimulus, instead of heading from alcohol, I'm going to do something safer. Yes, in, in the, the versions that we've used on inpatient withdrawal units and that's been used in resi rehab, we, we tend to use soft drinks as the sort of replacement approach motion that people make. Now, it's not a cure, it's not a magic answer, but it does get you better results. It absolutely does. Here, There's now been four large clinical trials that have shown that it helps prevent relapse. 
as I said, up to one year later. But what we did is we added it to detox. We gave it to 300 inpatients from four different withdrawal units in Melbourne and randomly assigned them to receive either the active training or four sessions of a pretend version. We call it sham training. So that makes the control group. Uh, it was double blind, so neither the participants nor the researcher doing the follow-up interviews to assess their alcohol use post-discharge were aware which condition they were in. And we actually found that we were able to reduce this automatic tendency to approach alcohol and shift that to an automatic tendency to avoid alcohol. But most importantly, we were really excited to see that four sessions of this training reduced relapse by 17%. And obviously, because it's computerized, it can be used outside the home. So just briefly, because we're running out of time, can this be used for people to help them actually deal with their alcohol addiction per se without having to go into inpatient detox? So far, it's only really got a strong evidence base for when it's added to treatment and people are very motivated to change their alcohol use. But we're currently running a trial of a, of a smartphone delivered version of it called Swipe. Um, so if anybody wants to try that, please visit swipe-app.com.au. But we're hoping exactly that, you know, it's scalable, it can, any, it can be used anytime, any place, anywhere. And the beauty of the, the smartphone version is that you can personalize it. And this is actually a world first that so people can actually put in the drink brands, beverages that they want to avoid, and, the, and also replace the approach images with um, pictures of their friends, family, hobbies, sports, anything that's personally meaning, meaningful to them. Sounds great. Victoria, thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you so much for having me, Norman. Thank you. And we'll have a link to that on our website. Victoria Manning is Associate Professor of Addiction Studies at Monash University. Welcome back, Tegan. Now, you've been do, looking at this study about food in the movies. There's been lots of studies of tobacco in the movies and smoking and its influence on people, but this has been looking at food. Absolutely, and also alcoholic drinks are relevant to what you were just talking about as well. So, yeah, a group of researchers in the States have looked at the 250 top-grossing movies from the past 25 years in the US and looked at the food and drinks depicted in them and the alcohol use depicted in them as well and compared that to the US dietary guidelines but also to actual US food habits. And, uh, I mean, I like movies and it wasn't a surprise to me to hear that movie food is generally pretty unhealthy. You see a lot of fat and sugar and a lot of alcohol as well. Yeah. I mean, I must, must say I'm obsessed with food in the movies because often they don't, drink, they don't eat it. They're just sort of having this dialogue and you look at the food, why aren't they eating the food? But so they, they, they I mean, that's a huge analysis to have done. So they found, they confirmed the, 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 the hypothesis, which was a lot of booze and a lot of bad food. Yeah. And I mean, we here in Australia, where we eat lots of junk food as well, I think that we often typify the US diet as being quite poor, but it was even worse in the movies than the, than the sort of average US diet in terms of saturated fat and sugar content and all of those sorts of things. But in addition to that, half of the, of the beverages shown in R-rated movies, which is about the equivalent to our MA, were alcohol, like so half of them. And you kind of go, that's fine. They're adult movies. But in G-rated movies for kids, 20% of beverages were alcoholic. So that's a lot. That's a lot of no. normalising of alcohol drinking in kids' movies. Now, with tobacco, it's branded. So the, the, this is a way of companies actually paying the movie studio to actually put their brand on there. Is branding part of this? Yes, but I think the the purpose of this study was that we know that there are rules around advertising and there's a lot of talk about branded products in movies as well, but they really wanted to look at unbranded food placement as well because it's not just advertising that's important. And you could say that it's even more persuasive 
that it's not branded. It just it's so normal that it's just it just exists in this movie world that isn't that isn't being obviously paid for by an industry. And you spoke to one of the authors. That's right. So he was uh, Brad Turnwald from Stanford University was saying that a lot of the diets depicted in these movies would actually fail legal advertising limits to youths in the UK, and it also fails the US federal recommendations for a healthy diet. Although he does say that the context of a movie does play a role. If you're showing, you know, a scene where many adults are partying in Las Vegas or something and you show them all drinking water, that's probably not realistic. Or if you're showing a 1950s American scene, it might make sense to show a diner and show burgers and fries and milkshakes. But there's a lot of scenes where the food is actually not an important part of the plot. The food is just sort of a background or a prop. And so in those cases, there's no reason why those foods should be unhealthy. Those could be subtle opportunities to show healthier choices that we would like people to be eating and drinking. That's Brad Turnwood from Stanford University, part of this study. So the kids' movies are one thing, but you know, aren't adults so, you know, strong enough to resist? Right. So you could sort of say, I mean, there's lots of things in adult movies that don't happen a lot in real life. I've never been in a high-speed car chase, and I'm not an extremely And eating a hamburger at the same time. <laughs> you know, there's a lot Excuse of Excuse me, I've just looking. got to stop. Please, just, can you just give me a moment just so I, while I pick up a takeaway? That's right. I don't have superpowers. I have never fallen in love with an extremely good-looking architect while being a pastry shop owner myself. Uh, but So maybe food's allowed to be part of this escapism, question mark. But also, the the, the Top grossing movies are disproportionately PG-13 movies, so those type that are kind of marketed right to the middle of the market, maybe teenagers. And we do know from previous studies that exposure to movie portrayals of things like racial bias, violence, risky sex, binge drinking is associated with increases in those behaviours among viewers. So it's not unsubstantiated at all that the diet portrayed could also be a factor. And they looked at movies over a 25-year period. Um, was there a change over that time? No, which which really surprised me because the language around food and our perception of healthy eating has shifted over the last 25 years. Last week we were talking about the past 20 years of health and there's been a big shift, but there really wasn't any difference in the mix of foods or in the nutritional score of foods over that 25-year period. We just reflect our diet. And briefly, did they suggest uh, that, that it was effective in changing behaviour? No, but they did. They were talking about what we could do in the future. And they was basically the, the upshot is that self-regulation, there has been self-regulation around um, alcohol depictions in movies, but it hasn't really done anything. So if there is a decision that this is a problem, it needs to be externally regulated for it to have an effect. Um, nice to try with that one. Thanks <laughs> to you, and we'll, and we'll come back to you later. Thanks, Norman. And in fact, with uh, tobacco in movies, whilst there's been a huge body of research with that showing that it does actually have an effect on smoking, uh, independent of parents, you know, parents that don't smoke, but in fact, if you've got tobacco in the movies, it can influence uh, whether children pick up smoking, and it hasn't made much difference to the instance of smoking in movies. And talking about smoking, the health effects of smoking on things like heart health and cancer risk are well known. But cigarettes also increase how likely you are to catch a respiratory infection and how ill you get when you do. And it's particularly important in these COVID times. Dr. Freddie Cetus is Director of the Centre for Primary Health and Equity at the University of New South Wales and has long argued for greater recognition of the links between smoking and respiratory infections. He's published a new comment on this in the Bulletin of the World Health Organisation and I spoke to him earlier. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you've been looking at the relationship between smoking and respiratory infections, and what have you found? So this is something that's been underappreciated for a long period of time. The U.S. Surgeon General report has been talking about this since 2004. But doing some work in South Africa, we found that the role of smoking on infectious respiratory disease has been underappreciated. We found up to a third of deaths from smoking are infectious respiratory diseases in the black population versus about 5% in the white. And it illustrates the socioeconomic differences, but it also illustrates how important it is in many countries across the world. So what you're talking about here is pneumonia, basically? Pneumonia and TB and flu, yeah. Those are the three main respiratory diseases. So you're saying this in the black population, but less so in the white. Is this an issue for Australia? Well, it is an issue because smoking does cause a lot of hospitalizations due to infectious respiratory disease and a lot of pneumonias, a lot of flu, hardly any TB because that's been dealt with very effectively. But it is a big burden of disease in Australian hospitals. And the reason for it is what? So we know that smoking affects the little brushes in our lungs. It is a minuscule brushes that are in our airways that can brush away any bugs and prevents them from getting a foothold. When we smoke, we also accumulate a lot of mucus, which allows these bugs to stick in our lungs more readily. And so those are the two main things in general that make us more susceptible to picking up respiratory bugs, viruses and bacteria. And I suppose this is reminding people that deaths from tobacco are more than just heart disease and cancer. That's correct. And, you know, when it comes to pandemics, we know roughly that about a quarter of the deaths from infectious respiratory disease are caused by smoking. So if we go to COVID and we've had over a million deaths from COVID across the world, even if 10% of those deaths were caused by smoking, that's already 100,000 deaths that we could have prevented by not smoking. And you've got an issue with how doctors are writing out death certificates in relation to smoking and people who might have died of pneumonia. Yeah, so we tried that a few years ago. And in fact, what drove me to write this piece in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization was a phone call to one of the jurisdictions. We started getting some traction in one of the jurisdictions to get smoking on one of the death certificates in Australia. And then COVID came along and everybody was distracted by COVID, which is an important lesson for us all that the health systems are taking a lot of strain and normal programs are being diverted to a lot of COVID work. So what you're saying is that doctors might say you've died of pneumonia but won't put down smoking as a secondary cause? Well, we want an independent question on that. We know whether you died of pneumonia or a heart attack or bowel cancer. We just wanted to introduce a question whether the person smoked or not on the death certificate and even the funeral director could ask that. So we know that if you give up smoking, if you quit smoking, the heart disease risk drops dramatically. In fact, within hours and days your heart disease risk of a fatal heart attack drops dramatically. How quickly does the risk drop for pneumonia? You halve your chances of getting a new pneumonia in the next season. So in other words, within a year, you've halved your risk. So it's much faster than lung cancer, which can take a few years. Correct, yes. We did some work on smoking cessation after cancer diagnosis, and we found the effects to be enormously beneficial. And again, the role of smoking cessation, even with cancer diagnosis, is again underappreciated. In other words, your outcome improves if you stop smoking, even if you've been diagnosed with it. Yes, it is as good as many of the procedures that we give to cancer patients right now. Yes, I think you claimed that it's as strong as radiotherapy. Yes, it is a very strong effect.
And so, you know, going back to COVID, we could be doing more on smoking prevention during the flu season, but also anyone who's a smoker that is discharged from hospital after being treated for COVID ought to have smoking cessation and a referral suggested in the discharge plan. Freddie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Freddie Cetus, who's director of the Centre for Primary Healthcare and Equity at the University of New South Wales. A bit more there, Tegan, in terms of depth on problems with smoking. Yeah, it's been a real theme this week. It has, it has. So people have been sending in their questions and comments to healthreport at abc.net.au. Hit us, what's yeah. come in? Let's talk about them. There's been a couple on the story that I did last week on antibiotics and young kids. And so let's kind of attack this one together, Norman. Jolene's sent in saying, on the story with kids and antibiotics, is the effect the same for children who are taking the antibiotics directly versus those who are ingesting them through breast milk? And I went back and looked at the study and it talked about prescriptions. It didn't specifically mention antibiotics via breast milk, but it did note that babies whose mums had antibiotics in pregnancy were at higher risk of some of the conditions mentioned than those whose mums didn't. What do we know about how antibiotics do or don't pass through the breast milk to baby? Some antibiotics do. In fact, most antibiotics do. And it does affect the child's microbiome. Obviously, it's in a much lower dose than a child would get from taking the antibiotics directly. But you know, the whole thing with antibiotics is that if you need them, you need them. But if you don't need them, you shouldn't be taking them. So if you've got a viral infection, don't have antibiotics. If you're pregnant or you are breastfeeding, be sure. And if you've got a bad case of mastitis or you've got a pneumonia or you've got a bad skin infection, then you do need to take the antibiotics. But if you've got a sore throat and you're not, you think it's probably just viral, don't. Um, it's, it's all a risk equation. But there are changes to the baby's microbiome from breast milk, from antibiotics, I should say, in breast milk. Whether that translates to the sorts of things you were finding in that study is an open question. Well, yeah, a follow-up question to this from Yasmin, who was talking from her own experience. She had her baby and ended up back in hospital with a severe uterine infection and was put on antibiotics and breastfed her baby. And then she also had mastitis, like you just said, and had antibiotics again. And she's always thought that the reason why her daughter has a low immune system and allergies and and other health problems is because of that, which must be a heavy burden to bear. And I wonder what the balance of benefit and risk is versus breastfeeding, which we know is very beneficial and the risk that we don't really know how to quantify of antibiotics during breastfeeding. So the thing about mastitis is that it's important to keep on breastfeeding through mastitis because it helps relieve the pressure on the breast. And there really isn't a lot of evidence that a child is going to come to a lot of harm from that. Um, you've got to take advice of the doctors around you who know what they're talking about. But the advantage to breastfeeding, the advantages, I should say, to breastfeeding are huge. And you've just got to be uh, a little bit careful about deciding to stop based on that. And I think you're probably, Yasmin's probably beating herself up a bit too much about, about this because there are plenty of kids who get allergies and problems where they've never been exposed to antibiotics at all. So it could just be a coincidence here. And I just think that uh, you shouldn't be blaming yourself for what's happened. Yeah. Yeah, just because something raises your risk doesn't mean that there isn't another factor involved. Correct. And if you go back to that study, you'll find that the raised risk, while it was statistically significant, was not huge. Mm. A question from Anne on compounding pharmacies and why they're so expensive. She's been taking a hormonal therapy that's been custom made for her. Is this better than just a normal pharmaceutical medicine? 
And not a shred of evidence that compounding for hormonal therapy makes any difference at all. So there's a lot... Probably it's one of the commonest reasons for compounding. So what we're talking about here, and a lot of people know what we're talking about, is, is pharmacies have this area where they compound supposedly tailored medications for people and uh, they, they mix things together. Now, sometimes there is benefit in compounding because of the generalization you get, I suppose, with standard pharmaceutical manufacturing. Whereas in the old days with pharmacies, they were able to tailor the way a child or an elderly parent might take it. So some people can't swallow their medication. So sometimes compounding will allow you to get the medication into a form that people will take and find more palatable. But this idea of tailoring hormonal therapy via compounding, there's not a shred of evidence that it's any better for you. No studies have been done. There is risk attached to it. I think it's probably, the quality has probably improved a lot over the years in terms of manufacturing quality. But the thing, I'm, I'm not, you know, any listener to the health report knows that I'm no great fan of the pharmaceutical industry. But one of the things that they do do well is manufacturing. So you know that you're getting a safe drug. And uh, you might argue about how they market it and so on, but you know that the manufacturing process is sound and you really can't be too sure about compounding that the dose is right and it's properly controlled. I'm sure there are plenty of pharmacists who do this well and are really assiduous about it, but it's not a well-controlled part of the industry. And again, there's no evidence. If you're going to take estrogen or progesterone, there's really no evidence that the way they compound it for you in the pharmacy is going to make you any less or more subject to, say, the risk of breast cancer. So who should people like Anne talk to if they want to change these therapies and go to something that's more mainstream? The general practitioner. You know, and a lot of pharmacists, to be fair to them, will say that it's the GP that has prescribed this and asked for it. And really, there's not much evidence. And maybe you want to get a second opinion from another general practitioner. A question from Leon, who wants a bit more detail on what it is about heat waves that are so dangerous for vulnerable people. We hear a lot that heat can kill and that people should be taking care during heat waves, but what's actually happening in the body of vulnerable people that makes them so susceptible to heat waves? And it is significant. And during a heat wave in France a few years ago, you know, a huge number, thousands and thousands of people died during that heat wave. And they died, neighbours died and people didn't know because they think of cold in the Northern Hemisphere, Northern Europe as being the problem. So people worry about hypothermia, but they don't actually think about hyperthermia. And what happens here is that it's people who are particularly vulnerable and frail, the elderly, whose temperature, inherent temperature control system doesn't doesn't work that well, who might not sweat and perspire as well as others in an enclosed environment where they might not be able to afford air conditioning. And effectively, the body loses the control of temperature. And and heat stroke itself is where the temperature can go up, your internal temperature can go up as high as 40 degrees. And your body is not designed to work at that high temperature and organs fail. And essentially, you die of organ failure. So young children can get it, and that's why they die in cars that have been left in summer when the parents have been in the supermarket shopping, thinking they've done the right thing by uh, not schlepping the child around the shops, but in fact they come back to find the child either in serious distress or, or having died. So children are subjected to, to it, as are the elderly and frail and people with serious disease. So it is a, it is a major issue. It affects your circulation and your blood pressure somehow, doesn't it? Is, is that you just your organs aren't getting the blood supply because you're too dehydrated? I just think there's multiple metabolic things that go on when you're at that at that temperature and dehydration is part of it. 
and you're just spinning out of control and th- you know, things go awry. And I'm not sure that they know exactly how, the, how you die, but it's probably through a cardiac arrest. When you're vulnerable and you've got other problems, it could be through a stroke or other, or, or other means, but essentially it's that your body's under stress and fails. And so the takeaway for people listening is to be aware of heat waves when they're coming up and to check in on your vulnerable neighbours and loved ones to make sure that they don't find themselves in that position. Yeah, and if you haven't got air conditioning, open windows, a fan, but again, if you've got a neighbour and you're in a suburb which gets you know high heat and you've got air conditioning, you know you've got a frail neighbour, maybe invite them in so that they get to, to be cooled down. Mm. Carl's asking about vitamin D. Uh, In a 2009 article, uh, Carl's saying that too much sunlight increases skin cancer deaths, but also that too little sunlight increases cancer deaths of other types. What is the optimum sun exposure to minimise cancer deaths? Well, the the notion that vitamin D reduces cancer rates is not strong. It, it, It was thought to be strong, but every time they've studied this, the link between vitamin D and cancer reduces. But you know, it, it's good to have good vitamin D levels. It's not a bad thing at all. And certainly it's good for bone health and other things. So having the right level of vitamin D is good for you. So there's no question about that. And sun is how you get it naturally. And they say you have to look, at the, look this up for where you live because it's different if you live in Tasmania than where you live, which is in Queensland, yes. in terms of how much sun you get. And it's different for the time of year. It's a few minutes around about the time when the sun is highest or just afterwards on head and shoulders. And also, if you are dark-skinned, you are less likely to produce vitamin D for the same amount of sun as somebody who's fair-skinned. So people who've got coloured skin need more sun than people who are pale-skinned. So rather than me giving that prescription here, you need to look it up. And usually the Cancer Council in your state will have the right amount of, of sun exposure. Also, I think Arthritis Australia will probably have it in terms of uh, preventing osteoporosis, how much sun you should get. But it's a few minutes a day, depending on, as I say, I'm repeating myself now, how far you are away from the tropics, and what time of year it is, winter or summer, and, um, and what, what, whether you have brown or black skin. A question from Paul on one of your favourite topics, Norman, which uh, involving fish oil. Paul has noisy knees and was taking fish oil for this. Should he stop? If so, should he go cold turkey or wean off the fish oil tablets? So, Paul, I've got one question to ask you. Are your knees any less noisy? I mean, has the fish oil oiled your knees and they're <laughs> less noisy, creaky? I've got noisy knees too. Look, what we didn't talk about with that fish oil story, that fish oil story was about... Um, cardiac disease and whether or not you know, sudden cardiac death and serious heart complications and people at risk. And what it showed was that fish oil didn't help there. Um, there's some doubt about whether fish oil improved, supplements improve your mental health. There is a bit more evidence for fish oil as an anti-inflammatory when you have got arthritis, but at the really very large doses of fish oil that's been done, South Australian research has done this. So the question here is, is it helping? You're not going to do yourself any harm by cutting back or stopping it and seeing whether or not your arthritis comes back. The evidence, I think, is stronger with more inflammatory arthritis than arthritis, I should say, <laughs> than osteoarthritis. But you're not going to do yourself any harm by stopping for a while. But inflammation is one thing that fish oil may help, but it is in quite large doses. The best thing for noisy knees is to ignore them and actually get 
some exercise that strengthens your quads in particular. You really want very strong leg muscles, the upper leg muscles, to protect your knees, stabilize them, and help reduce the wobble that may occur in the aging knee. And getting on the road there with a physiotherapist is probably a good idea. I spoke to a physiotherapist about crunchy knees for a story a couple of years ago, and they really made the, the point that if it's not hurting, it's probably not hurting. Like the, the crunchiness can sometimes just be air bubbles in the fluid in your knee that's in there lubricating it. If it's not accompanied with pain, it's probably not a problem. And even if it is accompanied by pain, it's the sort of thing that makes people go to see an orthopaedic surgeon to say if I can, you know, can have it cleaned out. And this operation of uh, knee arthroscopy with what's called uh, debridement and lavage, where they clean all the joint and remove the rubbish from the joint, actually can make your knee arthritis worse and certainly doesn't make it any better and it should not really be done. And, uh, you know, the, the, the argument for knee arthroscopy is more in younger people who've got a locked knee from a meniscus tear, but for cleaning out an arthritic knee, a noisy knee, doesn't really help. One more question for you today from Kate. We were talking a week or two ago about cancer treatment and the point was made that a multidisciplinary team in the public system seems to be associated with better outcomes. Kate's asking, how does a privately insured person arrange to be treated in the public system when GPs tend to refer them to one doctor who works in a private hospital? I think I should clarify that. I don't think that's what I said. I think that what I said was you're more likely to get a multidisciplinary team in the public sector than the private sector. The key here, whether you're going public or private, is are you going to be treated by a team? And so you go, you get referred to, say, a surgeon first up. Does that surgeon work with pathologists, with uh, radiologists, with radiation oncologists, and you assesses your case as to whether or not this is the right thing to do and you're going to get proper follow-up? And I don't think it matters much whether you're in the public or private sector as long as you're getting team-based care because treating cancer properly is a team sport. Now, some people have something that's pretty straightforward and you might have a a colorectal cancer that's really well-defined, it hasn't gone very far, and you don't really need a team to, to sit down and spend time on it. You're just going to remove it. But if it's spread, then you do need a team because what's the right follow-up? Whether you're going to have chemo and, and that sort of thing. So it's team-based care. The problem with the private system is that the surgeons and physicians in the private system don't get paid to do team-based care, whereas team-based care is much more is much easier to organise in the public sector. So they, they might want to provide that kind of care, but it's sometimes just not the infrastructure to do it. But more and more in private hospitals that try to specialise in cancer care, and there's quite a few of them now in Australia, they recognise that and provide quite good care. So the, I think that that's the thing to look for, is multidisciplinary care. There is another issue, by the way, with cancer care in the private system, is just how much out of pocket you're going to be, and particularly men with prostate cancer. Because there's a lot of urologists charging large amounts of money for out-of-pocket expenditure for a a radical prostatectomy, when radiotherapy, radiation therapy, is often, not always, but often just as effective, has different set of side effects, but probably fewer side effects like erectile dysfunction. And you can get it in the public system free, and there's often not a waiting list for it at all. So there are alternatives to the private system if you're going to be seriously out of pocket. And financial side effects of cancer care are significant. So that's the other thing to think about. 
if you are seeing a multidisciplinary team and you're in the private system, are you not just going to be out of pocket anyway? Yes, but yes or no. I mean, you may. There are surgeons and doctors who will ch- charge you the going rate. In fact, lots of surgeons will just charge you what the insurance company will rebate them. You're actually more at risk from your medical oncologist, the physician, who often do charge significant out of pocket. And whilst each episode might not look like a lot, it accumulates over time. So you really do need to get financial informed consent before you go in and do that. But if you're going to get team-based care then that's that's one of the keys. It's only one of the keys. The other is knowing what their uh, complication rates are in that hospital. By the way, the performance of a surgeon is at least 50 or 60% the environment in which he or she operates. So if they're, it's not just their experience and how many operations they do, it's the hospital they operate in and the sort of results that they get too. So you've got to inquire quite, quite broadly about the quality of care you're going to get in cancer. And that's why New South Wales, it really is the leader here. They have a lot of information about where you can go, who's got what experience there. And they've got a cancer treatment registry, which they've now got in Victoria as well. But uh, New South Wales is the uh, is the front runner in terms of giving consumers the sort of information they need for cancer care in both the public and private sectors. But just because it's public and just because it's private doesn't necessarily guarantee better or worse care. It's 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 the the wraparound. Right. Well, thank you all for your questions. And if you've got a question, send one in to us, healthreport at abc.net.au. Thanks as always, Tegan, and we'll see you next week. See you then.